So I'm so excited that you're here today. We are going to start today a three-week series about Easter, and then right in the middle of the series, Easter will happen. How many of you are ready? You have everything prepared, menu, gifts, me either. All right, good. So we'll just work on that this week. Uh, But what we are ready for is Good Friday service and Sunday coming up, so we want to make sure you put those in your plans uh, to come here um, to Erie first and, and enjoy those times with us as we celebrate Um, one of the most important things about our faith. So I want to start with this. The earliest formal creed that was ever written, the earliest confession of faith, is this thing called the Apostles' Creed. Raise your hand if you've heard of it. It's not a Rocky movie, okay? This is called the Apostles' Creed. And so you may be familiar with it, but I want you to say along, uh, along with me today, and the words will be on the screen here so we can say it together. Ready? I believe in God, the Father Almighty maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and buried. He descended into Hades. The third day he rose from the dead. He ascended into heaven and sits at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From thence he shall come to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. So that word, I want to clarify that word Catholic in there doesn't mean Roman Catholic, like you might know of many churches in our city, but it actually, the word Catholic simply means the general the universal, the whole. And so what that's saying is I believe in the Holy Church. Some people say the Holy Christian Church, but that word Catholic is is a different word than a Roman Catholic Church. Um, But the heart of this creed is found in the middle of it, where it says that Jesus suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and buried, and he descended into Hades, and the third day he rose from the dead. And these statements coincide with some scripture in 1 Corinthians 15, verses 3 through 5. So they come right out of the scripture, that part of this creed. The death and the burial and the resurrection of Jesus are actual events. They aren't parables. They aren't good stories that are told. They are actual events. And these events awakened faith in the New Testament. And my prayer over these next few weeks for us is that it would awaken our faith again. That it would allow us to begin to understand that because Jesus died and rose again, that our faith could come alive and that Jesus is real and that affects our everyday life, the way that we go about our everyday business because we have been declaring and I believe that Easter changes everything. And so I'd like to start today and talk a little bit about what the death of Jesus means. But before I do that, would you look at the person next to you and say, Easter changes everything? All right. If you don't do it better next time, I'm going to make you do it again. So just be ready. But I'll let it slide. So no serious historian of any faith or secular background has ever doubted that Jesus of Nazareth lived. No one's ever said that they've doubted a lot of things about Jesus. They've said he didn't do the miracles, he didn't rise again, but no one has ever said he never lived and he never died. 
In fact, there are so many um, different places that you can find this information. The death of Jesus is not debated in historical circles. Um, Josephus is a first century Jewish historian, and he wrote in his documents that Jesus was accused by Jewish leaders and condemned by Pilate. There was another guy named Tacitus. He wrote that Christ suffered the death penalty and was sentenced by Pilate. These were found in many other sources than just the New Testament. And so what we can know for sure and what history itself says is that absolutely Jesus died by the hands of Pontius Pilate. That is not debated in any historical circles. And so what I want to start with today is talk about before we can celebrate the resurrection of Jesus next weekend, I believe we have to understand more about the death of Jesus. And we have to realize how death affects life. What, what is the meaning of death to life? How do they connect? What is their relationship? And that's what I want to look at a little bit today because I believe that new life requires death. That new life actually requires death. And so what do we know about Jesus' death? Well, I just want to take a closer look at Holy Week as Pastor Don was talking about. Um, Holy Week is the events leading up to the death of Jesus. And so Holy Week begins the Sunday before Good Friday, which historically would be today. And what's today called in Holy Week? Does anyone know? Palm Sunday. Great. It's called Palm Sunday because, here's, here's why, if you don't know, Jesus entered the city of Jerusalem, mounted on a donkey, and people shouted, and this comes from Mark 11, 9 through 10, they shouted, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David, Hosanna in the highest heaven. And they waved palms as they said this. That's why they called it, they call it Palm Sunday. Now, entering the city in this way deliberately mimicked Solomon, David's son, who 1,000 years earlier rode a donkey as part of a declaration of his kingship. And so Jesus was actually mimicking something that had happened 1,000 years prior. And in the book of Zechariah, this was prophesied that this would happen. So it fulfilled a prophecy that he would do this. And so you have to know that by Jesus replaying this scene, he could have came in on a camel, he could have walked down the road, But he chose to replay the scene that we read in the scriptures. This was Jesus actually making a statement without saying anything. He was unmistakably saying that he was king and not Caesar. And from that moment, Jesus entered Jerusalem. He was on a collision course with Roman authority. And it wasn't even Monday yet. And he was walking through there, making a statement that he was the king without even saying anything. And this began the week. The second thing Jesus did, often uh, often recorded as Tuesday, he aroused opposition as he went into the temple. And in Mark, we see, the book of Mark, we see how he realizes that the temple, the people weren't praying and they weren't worshiping like the temple was made for. They were selling things. They were buying and, and trading, and, and they, were, they were selling things for profit, and they were acting as, the scripture says, as if it was a den of robbers, not a house of prayer. And the original purpose of the temple was lost. And so Jesus flipped some tables over. <laughs> he says, this is not what it's supposed to be. 
Let me change how you're thinking. I think literally as he overturned those tables, he was trying to communicate not this, but this. Let me overturn your entire thought process and what this temple should be. And he uses Jeremiah 7:11, and he uh, basically warns them that God will destroy the temple. The priests were not really excited about that statement. In fact, they were pretty offended. The elders, the people, the scribes, the people in the temple, they were probably thinking, who is this guy telling us is going to get destroyed? It's rude. What is he doing? And then the week goes on. Jesus tells, uh, he, he goes around and he's telling the story to anyone that'll listen. The parable of the vineyard, you can find that in Mark 12. And this is the parable. He says, a man plants a vineyard and he rents it to some farmers. And at harvest, he sends a servant and the farmer sees him and beat him and treat him shamefully. Then he sends two more servants and they do the same to them. And then he has one person left to send and he sends his son, who he loves. And he thinks, surely they'll respect my son. If I send my son there, surely they'll respect him. But instead, the tenants decide to kill him because they want the son's inheritance. And so they kill the son also. And Jesus says in verse 9 of Mark, uh, what then will the owner of the vineyard do? He will come and kill those tenants and give the vineyard to others. Haven't you read this passage of scripture that the stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone? And so Jesus begins to warn the people of the impending judgment that will come upon them. During Holy Week, he is not walking around trying to make people feel warm and fuzzy. Can you see this? In fact, every day he is offending and, and frustrating more and more people. He is walking around telling them that God is going to judge you if you continue acting like this. But Jesus isn't done. The week continues to play out in a really controversial way. And in Mark 14, an unnamed woman comes with an alabaster jar of perfume. And she breaks the jar, you might remember the story, and anoints Jesus and pours the perfume on his head. And people begin to criticize her and say, why are you wasting that? Do you know how much that costs? Clinique isn't even having a sale, you know? What are you doing? Like, that is really important. You've wasted your whole life savings on this, on this moment that doesn't even matter. And Jesus scolds them and says, would you stop it? Because she gets it. She's the only one in this room that gets it. She understands my value. She's giving everything she has. She's giving all that she could. Okay, now this is just fascinating to me, and I don't know if you've ever caught this in the scripture, but in Mark 14, verse 10, this is what happens directly following that moment. Then Judas Iscariot, one of the 12, went to the chief priests to betray Jesus to them. So Judas watches this woman do it, and that is the catalyst. That's the straw that breaks the camel's back. That is the thing that sends Judas out to betray Jesus. So immediately after the woman anoints Jesus, Judas departs to betray him. So interesting, the dichotomy that one unnamed woman, they specifically don't name her, is committing an act of devotion and then a disciple is committing an act of treachery. And scholars say that this anointing 
was probably seen and interpreted as having messianic significance. So yes, it was really important to the woman to do it, but also kings need to be anointed. You remember in the Old Testament when they would make someone a king, they would pour a horn of oil on their head. And so the unnamed woman probably didn't even know what she was doing. But it was the last straw that she was saying, this is a king. And everyone around, around Jesus went, oh, what is happening? He, he's gaining ground. He's gaining more political influence. We have to stop this right now. And the unnamed woman was simply taking one step. She was making a huge sacrifice. And it would cause a domino effect that would play perfectly into God's sovereign, amazing plan. And as I read this, I just can't help but be overwhelmed with the message that this sends us as believers. That our small acts of obedience, that the things that we do that don't seem very important, or the things that we do that don't seem to affect the world on a grand scale, are the very things that God is using to unfold his perfect, flawless plan for the universe. Don't stop listening to him. Don't stop taking the small steps. Don't ever convince yourself that your small group is too small or your conversations are too weak or, or the service you do is unnoticed or your gifting is somehow less important to others because the work God is asking you to do is not insignificant or unimportant. It is vital and it is unfolding the spiritual history of all of creation. That woman didn't even know that was her role. But in her act of obedience, of sacrificing that, that began the domino effect that Jesus went to the cross for all of creation. Just say wow for a minute. <laughs> I mean, that's amazing to me. The Jewish authorities sought to kill Jesus because he had proved in one week to be a very serious political threat. And his message of God's rule threatened the status quo, and so they said, we will take him out. We will kill this influence. We cannot let this man gain ground. And so we will kill him and we will stop his influence. That, that is what they thought that they were doing. And so they take Jesus to trial. And the high priest questions him. And he asks him questions. And in Mark 14, 62, Jesus blows the whistle on himself. He says, I am, said Jesus, and you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the Mighty One, and coming on the clouds of heaven. And so as if they didn't have enough to crucify him, he had already been going around town telling stories that uh, if they didn't accept him, that God was going to judge them. He had already uh, mocked the way that Solomon had come into the city, mimicked it, and, and tried to come in and say that I'm king. And so as if they didn't have enough to crucify him, he stands before these people, and he just claims to be God's anointed son, implying that he will sit in judgment for the high priest and everyone he is talking to. And Jesus' bold reply is met with shouts of blasphemy and calls for death. The people sat there and just shouted, how could someone say that? What does he, who does he think he is? Why does he think he can act this way? What kind of power and, and what kind of authority does he think that he has? And when I read that, I want to be a little critical of those people. Don't they know that was Jesus? 
Don't they know how kind and fair and just and how he had healed probably some of their family and how he had restored sight to the blind and, and healing to, to, to people? And don't they know that he, he loved little children and, and, and he walked around the city just making things better? Don't they know that? Why would they say that, that he should be killed? Why would they do that? And when I ask God that question, he answers me sometimes. <laughs> And I felt as if he said this, that theologically speaking, Jesus is about to die for the whole human race. He's about to die for you. He's about to die for me. He's about to die for all those who came before us and all those who will be born after us. And in that sense, we all were in that crowd. We all were in that crowd shouting and calling for his death because our sin sent him to the cross. And those people did the same thing that we do every time we choose death over life, every time we choose sin over obedience. We were the faces in the crowd that day. We condemned Jesus, we ushered him into death. And every time we ignore what God is asking us to do, we do it all over again. This death is part of the gospel, but death was only part of the story. I believe it's an important part. That's why I'm speaking about it today, but I do believe it was only part of it, and so I don't want to stop there. But Jesus knew then, and he knows today, that despite the death he faced, the gospel was good news because new life requires death, and because Jesus knew that Easter would change everything. Because sin is much more than a dividing line between right and wrong. It's, it's a matter of life and death. Jesus didn't die on the cross just to make bad people good. He brings dead people to life. He makes dead hearts come alive. He makes dead situations turn on a dime into life-giving circumstances. He makes dry bones come to life. But over and over in the scripture, Things have to die for Jesus to resurrect them. And the new life will require us to die to ourselves. This new life will require us to make Jesus the Lord of our life and the Savior of our soul. In the Gospel of John, those scriptures primarily came from the Gospel of Mark, but I want to turn to the Gospel of John for the remainder of of this time that we have together. And in the Gospel of John, the seventh recorded miracle that Jesus did was he raised Lazarus from the dead. Now, seven is a biblical number um, that often signifies perfection or completion. And so I believe that perhaps that was a communication of this is the seventh miracle. Pay attention. <laughs> Pay attention to this one. And to understand this miracle, you have to know a little bit about ancient Jewish burial traditions. Uh, when Lazarus died, his feet would have been bound, um, his, his ankles and his arms tied to his body with linen strips. And his dead body would have been wrapped in approximately 100 pounds of grave clothes to protect and preserve his body. So Lazarus virtually looked like a mummy. That's what he looked like when he was in the tomb. And so Jesus came upon the, the tomb, and he said, roll the stone away. And in John eleven forty three, 43, it records this. It says, when he said this, 
Jesus called in a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. And the dead man came out, his hands and feet wrapped with strips of linen and a cloth around his face. And Jesus said to them, take off the grave clothes and let him go. I wonder if Jesus said it in a loud voice because he was wrapped in 100 pounds of clothes. I mean, Lazarus, can you hear me? Come out. In reality, I also believe Lazarus probably hopped out because he was all tied up, so just go with me. Uh, so maybe you should have said, Lazarus, hop out you know, of the grave. Roll out. Um, but you get the point. So at the Lord's voice, Lazarus came back to life. And this new life, this new chance, this miracle required death. Because if death hadn't happened, the miracle could not have followed. You cannot resurrect what has not died. So in the scripture, I think it's interesting because Mary and Martha, his two sisters, were frustrated because from their perspective, Jesus showed up too late. I can relate. Joel knows that. I'm late pretty much everywhere we go. <laughs> Sometimes I admit things I wish I didn't <laughs> from right up here. So anyway, Mary and Martha were really frustrated because they felt like Jesus had showed up too late. They wanted Jesus to heal Lazarus of being sick, not of being dead. That was not their plan. And they were frustrated because Jesus was sort of taking his time getting to Lazarus. Jesus had all of the, the uh, you know, powers he could. He could have walked a little faster to get there. He could have called a taxi. You know, he could have gotten there faster. But he decided to get there when he got there. And Mary and Martha were very frustrated. If you read in the scripture, they, they were sort of angry. Why didn't you come sooner? He would have been alive if you would have come sooner. But perhaps, maybe, Jesus waited a little longer to reveal a little more of his power. I believe that he does the same with us sometimes. If you feel like you're in a holding pattern, it may be because God is getting ready to do something more miraculous than you've previously experienced. But what we can learn from Lazarus is that something precious might have to die first so God can resurrect it. And I believe that this word is for someone today that sometimes things have to go from bad to worse before they get better. There are all different levels of faith. The last series we talked about um, growing stronger in our faith, that we need to keep growing stronger. We need to keep growing growth rings. And um, we talked about things that would get us there, things that could keep our momentum. Remember in the very beginning there, we talked about momentum. And then we talked about growing stronger. And, and there are all different levels of faith. There's preventative faith that believes God can keep things from happening for us. We, we, um, we pray maybe for traveling mercies or a hedge of protection over our children, things that God can keep from happening to us, but there is another dimension of faith, and I believe that it's called resurrection faith. And this is a faith that refuses to put periods at the end of disappointments, because God resurrects things, because our God raises dead things back to life. Our God raises dead things back to life. Did you hear me say that? That our God raises dead things back to life. What, what a savior that we have. 
that God looks at impossible things, things that you have deemed absolutely impossible, things that you have deemed dead in your life, and he looks at it and says, with resurrection faith, I can raise dead things back to life. When the application is denied, when the adoption falls through, when the business goes bankrupt, new life requires death. He cannot resurrect what hasn't died. And I believe that sometimes you need to bury that thing. And then if it's resurrected, you know God did it. It takes courage to end an unhealthy dating relationship, but you won't find Mr. Right if you're dating Mr. Wrong. It takes courage... (laughs) It takes courage to quit a job, but it might mean the difference between making a living and making a life. Uh, It takes courage to change majors, but it's better to fail at something you love than to succeed at something you hate. It takes courage to decide that you will not carry that wrong attitude anymore that you won't gossip, that you won't be negative, that you will walk away even if people begin to say those things about others because you aren't gonna do that anymore. It it takes courage to let go of that expectation that you have for your spouse that is dividing you because they can't seem to live up to it. It takes courage to forgive. It takes courage to trust. It takes courage to let go of wanting more stuff and giving generously. It takes courage to let your chains fall off. It takes courage to let religion die and to think through things a different way. So let me ask you this. What needs to die in your life so that can be resurrected? So that God can reveal more of his power. So that God gets more of the glory because new life often requires death. And I believe there is no middle ground. Either Jesus is Lord of all, or he's not Lord at all. Jesus is Lord of all, or he's not Lord at all. So which is it? You know, when I became a Christian, I was a teenager, and I remember um, about two years after I decided to follow Christ, uh, I very distinctly remember a moment where um, it was like Jesus leveled with me. And, and I felt the Spirit of God say to me, are you in or are you out? And I remember wrestling with that. I, I knew the sacrifice. I, I knew the, the decisions I would have to make if I was going to choose to follow Christ. I, not all of them, but I knew there would be some. I knew what my life would probably look like if I chose to go at it and try it on my own and do things the way that I thought I should do. And I I really wrestled with either walking away from following Christ that day or throwing myself into the arms of Jesus and holding on for the ride and trusting my future in him, whether it looked like what I thought it would or not. If you can believe Lazarus came out of the tomb and Jesus walked out of the tomb, You can escape the death that holds you. And you can tap into the resurrection power that Jesus Christ offers and stop living the same way. It's almost Easter. So are you in or are you out? Because if you're in, then let's go. Let's let's go after him. 
Let's do this together. Let's live as a body of Christ that is alive and that is seeking, that, that is a little bit out of our control and it feels kind of crazy and sometimes we don't know what to do with it, but we say, okay, God, we're just gonna go the direction that you want that is less selfish in our thinking, that's less about my preferences and what I think we should do and what, how I think we should do it and how we've always done it in the past. None of you do that to me. Okay, <laughs> you're working on it. Um, let's live as a time that people that were less offended week by week and week, week out and God's just bringing that out of us and we're saying, you know what? Those things in the past that I've carried for years and years and years, I'm done with that. I'm moving forward because I'm in and because God's resurrection power can change that. Let's open our arms wider and wider. Let's embrace change. Let's become a community of faith that fights for what is right and what is true because I believe that God is just asking us, are you in or are you out? I wanna challenge you today that if you're feeling like you want to live your life for Jesus, and maybe this is your very first time you've sort of had that moment and you've made that decision, or maybe um, you've been straying away Maybe, maybe you have, um, you, you feel convicted this morning and you, you want to recommit your life to chasing after Jesus because even after reading the scriptures today, you see the, the resurrection power that he offers and you have been tapping into that. Here's what I want you to do on your bulletin. There's a little card there at the bottom and there's just a place to check. Um, I want to talk about my relationship with Jesus. Would you do that and just turn it in at the desk or bring it up to me? Because here's the thing, we want to help you get where God's taking you. That's, that's, that's why we show up to work. It's because we want to help you get where God's taking you. And so would you check that? Would you get that into my hands or out in the lobby? Because here's the thing, Easter changes everything. And if it doesn't, we got it wrong. Easter changes everything. So I began this message today um, framing the idea that we need to understand the death of Jesus to understand the life of Jesus. And so I just want to take a minute. I want to encourage you to get to Good Friday service this Friday at 7. Maybe that's not your typical routine, um, but it's going to be here in the sanctuary, and that is where we remember Christ's death. We're actually going to walk through several tables that um, go through the Holy Week that I talked about. We're going to see a representation of Palm Sunday and a representation of, of the, the time that he's in the temple and, and different things like that. And uh, there's child care for under the age of five, and the rest of the family can walk through the experience together. It's from 7 to 8 on Friday. And then next Sunday at 10, we're going to gather for an hour of activities, fun for the kids, um, free waffles, free waffle breakfast down in the gym. And then we're going to meet here at 11 and we're going to celebrate with a powerful Easter service. You're not going to want to miss it because we have spent a lot of time thinking about the best way that we can honor Jesus this year through the resurrection. And if we believe that Easter changes everything, then you cannot come alone next Sunday. Because are you in or are you out? And if you're in, then ask Jesus who he wants you to extend the invitation to. I awkwardly asked a cashier this week. She looked at me and said, no. All right, I asked you. I said, I'll leave this card right here. She's like, ugh. <laughs> but she might come. <clears throat> I asked Jesus to tell all of you three people to ask, and he promised me he would if you would listen. And so at the end of church today, uh, there's some cards out there. I want you to take at least three. And as you take them, I want you to get them in the hands of friends and family. You may not have invited anyone to church in a really long time, and you are a little rusty. 
but next week is your week. And not because we want to fill this room for our benefit, but because Easter changes everything. And because we can't any longer hang on to this truth and not share it with anyone else. So would you stand? We're just going to do something real quick and then we'll end today. The last thing I want to talk about about death today is this, that Jesus died on the cross. He rose again in three days. And by doing that, he defeated death once and for all. He defeated it. And so I'd like to end with this scripture and pray for us today from 1 Corinthians 15. It's on the screen. You can follow along with me. This is what it says. I declare to you, brothers and sisters, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Listen, I tell you a mystery. We will not all sleep, but we will all be changed in a flash, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound, the dead will be raised imperishable, and we will be changed. For the perishable must clothe itself with the imperishable, and the mortal with immortality. And when the perishable has been clothed with the imperishable, and the mortal with immortality, then the saying that is written will come true. Death has been swallowed up in victory. Where, O death, is your victory? Where, O death, is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God, he gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my dear brothers and sisters, stand firm. Let nothing move you. Always give yourself fully to the work of the Lord, because you know that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. Yes, let's thank Jesus for that truth. And so, God, we thank you that your promise is that when things die, it allows you an opportunity for your resurrection power to show up. And so, God, we give you our lives. We surrender them to you. We put things at your feet this week that are hard to give up, things that we're not sure we should hang on to. And we pray, Lord God, that you would apply your resurrection power to those things if it's your will. But God, we celebrate even now that death has been swallowed up in victory. Where, O oh, death, is your victory? Where, O oh, death, is your sting? And on that promise we stand as we celebrate Holy Week and go into Easter. Thank you, Jesus, that Easter changes everything. And it's in your name we pray. Amen.